Hi, and welcome to Imagination, a podcast brought to you by BIMI, the Biomedical Engineering and Imaging Institute here at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City. My name is Jazz Munitz, and today I have the distinct privilege of getting to speak with three incredibly uh, brilliant and uh, people who have really been at the forefront of this fight in COVID, both from a research perspective and from a front lines perspective. Um, so today we're going to be dis- we're going to be speaking a lot about AI, radiology, and how it overlaps specifically in the context of COVID, but also beyond and looking towards towards the future of radiology as a field and the interplay between people and machines in this context. So I'd first like to introduce uh, Mike Chung. Uh, Mike Chung is an assistant professor of radiology specializing in cur- in cardiothoracic thoracic imaging here at uh, at Mount Sinai. So, hey, Dr. Uh, Dr. Chung, nice to meet you. Thanks for coming. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. Absolutely, yeah. And next up, we also have Dr. Adam Bernheim, who is an assistant professor of radiology as well, also specializing in cardiothoracic imaging, and also another incredible team member here at the Icon School of Medicine. Hey, Hi, thanks for, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here as well. Absolutely. Thanks for coming. And uh, next up, we have Young Young, uh, Dr. Young Young, who is an assistant professor of radiology as well here in the Biomedical Engineering and Imaging Institute at BIMI. So, hey, how you doing? Thanks for coming. Hi, thank you for having me here. Absolutely. So let's jump right in. So uh, what we're going to be discussing a lot today and and maybe a good jumping off point is, Young, your research uh, throughout this time of COVID, uh, specifically dealing with utilizing new AI algorithms that you designed in order to uh, help work as a complementary diagnostic tool and in improving a complementary diagnostic tool in the fight against COVID and in trying to get accurate diagnoses of patients using CT radiology and a ton of else. So maybe in your own words, could you just give us a run through how did this begin? What are the impacts? Let's, Let's jump right in. Okay, this is kind of a long story, but we can make it short. So so as we know, uh, the COVID actually starts uh, starting early uh, this year, first as in China, and at, at that time because I'm a Chinese, so we knew, we get we got a lot of news from the, the you know the media and also TVs that get you know the know the that spread very fast, and also a lot of cities locked down for for the for the reason. And then luckily because I'm, we are doing imaging, so uh, luckily we have we have some you know collaborators in China. Uh, they in their hospital they you know scan some COVID patients using CT just uh, CT uh, high resolution CTs, and then we just think about okay uh, because we are doing imaging how about we first analyze the data so that's why uh, we can we 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 do some uh, we do some you know research agreement to port data and then uh, we have Michael and Adam here in our radiology to read images actually they too very two important paper and then the first paper actually is to describe the features of the COVID-19 patient from an imaging point of view in the CT images. Maybe Michael can give more detail in the later. And the second paper Adam uh, published leading the is leading the, the, the paper is uh, the, the to uh, you know derive the time series, you know, the, the causes of relationship with the, the severity of the COVID patient. And then we actually we found so because the reading image is not that simple, and then you need a specialist, you know, to read images and to interpret images and even do the report. So uh, at that time, the only China has, you know, has very, you know, uh, a lot of cases. We don't anticipate that we'll spread out the whole world yeah, at, that, at that moment. And then we just, uh, we uh, after we, you know, do this paper, you know, 
is just like U.S. and they also start to have COVID patients and all the world has started to have COVID patients. At that moment, we are thinking about, okay, because a lot of people, a lot of countries or like the hospital might not have expertise to read images. So how about we use the machine or computer to learn some features from the images and then transfer, you know, the knowledge from radiologists to computer, which we call AI system. And then that might, you know, can, that might help a lot of, you know, uh, either regions who la where lacks of the, the, the expertise of reading images. And then, and meanwhile, we, when we find that, you know, uh, the, uh, the, the time series with the uh, severity and also the, the COVID patient, we found in early stage of the, the patient, COVID patient, a lot of people is, you know, have no symptom or no, no, you know, uh, imaging features. So only use the imaging might not be a, a very, very, you know, wise choice because you might, you know, cause some, you know, wrong diagnosis. That's why we also try to incorporate some clinical information, including some, uh, you know, typical symptoms, blood work, and then exposed history, and then jointing it to estimate the, you know, the or diagnose diagnose the COVID status. Then we come up with this idea, and then luckily we are here, including uh, the student Shang Mei here. She's fantastic to you know getting all all the data together and also do some modeling on the both imaging and the imaging and the clinical information part. And then we we just when we have the the paper is you know we we did the project very fast like within several weeks, and then we wrote the paper and then just say maybe we can submit to nature levels and then you just submit to that and then after two rounds of revision we got the paper published. That's fantastic, and it, and it makes sense why it went through so quickly. This is a really extremely pressing issue, and especially you guys got in right at the floor level, right as things were taking off and really, you know, created something that could make some real change, not only here, but, you know, across the world. I really like that you brought up the, the point about uh, access and places where, because we're very fortunate here at Mount Sinai to have the incredible radiology uh, radiologists who I'll toss it over to now, uh, but it's not, it's not always so fortunate everywhere. So you're right, this is a global issue, and it expands far out of just the main metropolitan regions. So it's fantastic fantastic that you had the foresight to be designing something to help everyone. Um, yeah, so would, uh, would, uh, would either uh, Mike or Adam, would you guys like to hop in and, and maybe discuss how you see this coming into play or just your experience being on the front lines here? What's, what's the experience of a radiologist during this? Yeah, I'll just add that I'll echo everything that Jan said. And um, I think we at Sinai, we're really blessed to have this opportunity to, co to collaborate with um, people around the world uh, and specifically people in China for this um, pandemic. It, I, I guess, in the early chapters or, or the early kind of stage of this pandemic, the, what was most pressing and what was most important to a lot of clinicians and uh, radiologists was the early diagnosis, uh, because um, you know the the blood tests or the swabs, the PCRs, uh, they weren't as accurate or uh, as um, as readily available as they are right now, just worldwide. So. Um, Obviously, we thought that imaging would play an important role um, in kind of the clinical workup for uh, suspected patients. And um, yeah, I, I think just reflecting back, it was an amazing experience to be able to collaborate with our colleagues in China and to, to really also um, put Mount Sinai on the map when it comes to, to COVID research and COVID care. Um, and uh, I think it's just amazing that we were able to even uh, write up these manuscripts uh, regarding AI, and just because um, it is a bigger picture type of thing, where it's not just um, the New York City population, but the whole world is going through this. So. 
um, it was great that Sinai was able to really uh, cement themselves in this way. Absolutely. And, and Adam, and, Adam and, yeah, and, what's your experience been? I very much agree with both Yang and Mike. I, I, I certainly would echo that it's been a privilege to have been in a position where we're able to make a positive contribution to our, our field. I think that radiology, we understood immediately that radiology is foundational for diagnosis of patients with suspected COVID-19. And we were just in a very fortunate position uh, because of great colleagues and, and good connections that we had um, with some of the Chinese hospitals through Yang and others that we were able to um, have access to a lot of uh, scans early on and be able to um, be able to put out some data that, that I think is helpful. So it, it was just a privilege to work with good people on a good project that hopefully has made a positive contribution to this pandemic. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and there's also really something to be said about the way in which the scientific field has interacted in this collaborative way. I mean, uh, as we were doing research and COVID research in our lab and here at Sinai, it's not so much just about the publication. Uh, it's not about career advancement. It's about getting data as quickly as possible or whether it just be in the, in the idea of raw images and making those out there so that people like Young and like you guys could train AI algorithms in order to start using it as a diagnostic tool. It, it really does speak to uh, to how important it is to make sure that everything that we're creating in science is open and accessible for everyone to do, you know, uh, obviously all within HIPAA regulations, of course, that's, that's the massive important part, but in order to see where this kind of data can take us, um, and, it, and it really seems that here it's created an incredible tool. Uh, yeah, so I, I'm also a little bit curious, can, can this... Uh, so maybe let's walk us through. So the so the you have you're integrating clinical presentations. You're integrating a maybe SARS-CoV test, uh, SARS-CoV two PCR test, an RT-QPCR test, um, and uh, is that have a predictive measure? Um, maybe discrepancies between those can, can it, would that also implicate whether a radiology uh, test is necessary for a specific patient? So I maybe I kind of first you know chip into uh, say, say something. So first, uh, our AI algorithm we didn't incorporate the, the SARS-CoV you know uh, to uh, test. The reason is uh, so usually like well the, the motivation for us to do the, this research or using CT or the imaging and uh, clinical information is just as Michael and Adam mentioned in the very beginning of the pandemic. There uh, the, there's a shortage of the, the tested. That tested, and also the the you know the timing to process that is incredibly incredibly long. Sometimes you know several days, or you know right now they are maybe faster, you know several hours, up to several hours or even shorter. But at the beginning, it's very long, so like multiple days maybe. Right. And then meanwhile, uh, meanwhile, so uh, a lot the the most reason the most important reason is the false negative you know rate, which means the pure the uh, you know uh, start you know. Co- uh, you know the, the test. If the result is a negative, that, that doesn't mean real negative. So we see a lot of cases with the negative test, but some positive in the chest CT scans. If they do the multiple tests, maybe they'll be you know for, uh, you know positive. So the if a positive, we will be we are more confident. Okay, the patient will have the COVID. But if a negative, it's hard to say. So that's why in a lot of in a, a lot of countries, their guidelines. Uh, is to do multiple serious testing if negative to make sure to all fully rule out the, the COVID status. And then our, it's interesting, like in the CT images in the early stage, I just mentioned, there's some, you know, even you don't, you, you know, so the, 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 the test is negative, so there's still some chance to see some 
you know, image features uh, of the typical features that like, you know, GGO, which, you know, both uh, really all can give more details about that because we are more technical person uh, to, understand, to use their knowledge to transfer that. But I want to say the chest CT images might have uh, some merit for early diagnosis. Although this is not widely used in uh, in US, but it's already widely used it's used in uh, like China, you know, some European countries, even for screening purposes. Uh, uh, some reason I, I to tell you, I'm not totally you know know the reason why US here is not using that as a screening. Maybe some you know radiation dose for other reasons. But I think the the merit for the CT images or, or like uh, or chest ray images are very very high compared to only using like uh, the the test kit. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, could uh, could Adam, could you please just to kind of explain and maybe break down what a CT is? Um, just just in the scope of this and and in the scope of a chest X-ray, you know, I think a lot of patients might hear that. Uh, but but what does it truly mean? What what are we looking for when you're actually doing one of these radiology scans? A CT scan is a very powerful tool to be able to get an inside look at a patient's anatomy at a three-dimensional level. We can image a patient, for example, in their chest and have hundreds of sequential scans uh, slice by slice through the patient, which allows us a very detailed look at their anatomy and therefore pathology affecting the, affecting the chest. One of the tremendous benefits of, of CT is that it, because it gives such an inside perspective, much more so than a standard radiograph, we're able to see uh, relationships with anatomic structures well, and we can rule in and rule out many diseases uh, very, very effectively. So CT in general is an incredibly powerful tool in medicine and it has applications um, that, that span the gamut of, of pathology. But in patients with coronavirus infection, we do find that many patients have typical abnormalities that can be identified on CT. And one of the things that we found uh, in, in our work, as well as the work of many other good groups uh, throughout the world, is that uh, sometimes the pattern of disease in COVID-19 has a pretty characteristic appearance on the CT images, which is very helpful for us, not only in making the, suggesting the diagnosis, but in distinct, distinguishing it from other possible etiologies. And uh, in addition, we're able to correlate some of the findings with disease time course and progression of disease and complications that may develop. So all of these are very valuable pieces of information to know for working up any given patient. And, and really CT is at the heart of, um, of, of ruling in and ruling out um, certain findings and complications and progression of disease. It's fantastic. Thank you for that explanation. That was super clear and concise. Uh, I'd like to ask a, a little bit more about some of these uh, pathologies that are that are being seen and some of the findings of the radio radiology. I've, I've read a few papers and I know that people are describing these things called ground glass opacities or these crazy paving patterns. And I know that things have uh, that was from papers from a few months ago. So maybe things have progressed. What now, when you guys are looking at radiology scans, chest X-rays of COVID patients, what are you really looking for now? What are the specific things you see? Sure. So uh, it's funny. People ask me about ground glass opacities all the time. Um, what, what it really means is that on, uh, on a normal CT, the lung, because it contains mostly air, should be black uh, because air is black on the CT scan. But when the, disease, when the lung starts to become diseased and be filled with other things other than air, such as fluid, cells, pus, or debris, it starts to turn gray and even white. And um, what we notice is that in some patients with COVID-19, specifically early on in disease time course, they often have these gray areas in the lung, and they're termed ground glass because they're just, um, they're just bright enough that you can see them, but they're not so bright that they completely 
uh, obscure the architecture and anatomy of the lung. So imagine, for example, uh, a shower door or a glass door, which uh, is lucent. You can see through it, but it's just cloudy enough. It's just hazy enough. that You cannot make out um, fine detail behind it. Like, for example, behind a glass, a glass door that's been, uh, that's been, that's, uh, has a sort of ground glass appearance. So that's what really the analog and the coil is, is on the CT scan. When we see these, these opacities, we certainly see them, but we are still able to see through them and to still see the normal anatomy and vessels and airways in the lungs, but they're a bit obscured and a bit hazy. Gotcha. That's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad now I understand that. Uh, and, and everyone listening does as well. Uh, gotcha. So in this, uh, are, do, are these ground glass opacities and these craves, crazy paving patterns, are these present throughout all COVID positive patients when you do a chest x-ray? Because it, it seems that some of Young's research says that that might not be the case. There are false negatives. Uh, the ground glass opacities are seen really best on, on CT. Um, they, they, there are false negatives. So um, one of the things that several researchers have discovered is that while ground glass opacities are a hallmark of COVID-19 on CT, they're not present in every single case, um, particularly very early in infection. So if the patient has a CT scan very quickly after uh, symptom onset, they may not have the opacities yet. Um, so while they are characteristic and typical and suggestive when seen and when seen in a certain shape and certain location in the lung, they're not present in every single case. So the absence of seeing them does not, does not constantly allow 100% ruling out of the diagnosis. Hmm. And it also can be quite tough, I, I would assume as well, because I'm sure that there's a lot of overlap uh, between uh, COVID-19 lungs and different coronavirus uh, lung presentations of, of lung infection. So how can you, how have you guys learned to delineate between these things? Or are you really relying back on RT-PCR and, and other, and, uh, and, and these other tools that we have to diagnose COVID in a non-radiological setting? Well, oftentimes we won't have that RT-PCR. I guess during the pandemic, we wouldn't have the RT-PCR information right at hand because it was happening, happening concurrently with ah, the scan itself. Um, but uh, how to different, your question was how to differentiate it between COVID and other infections, I guess. Was exactly. that your question? Exactly, right. Because from an outside perspective, it seems, you know, it's, it, it can uh, seem like all inflammation in the lungs would be, you know, uh, a very similar inflammation in the lungs no matter what's going on. So for all of us, can you kind of maybe speak a little bit more to, get, you know, yeah, how, how can you tell? How can you tell? So you can't, you can't 100% tell, obviously, okay. but uh, it really depends on the setting in which you're working. So uh, during the month of March, April, May uh, in New York City, specifically when it was the epicenter of COVID in the world, um, it, those kind of characteristic findings uh, would make us think of COVID-19 as the initial diagnosis. However, you know, if we weren't in New York and we were, say, in the Midwest or in, in, on the West Coast at, at that time, uh, given that it might have been the tail end of the flu season, we might have also included influenza um, on our differential if you saw something like, like that in the lungs that Adam was describing. Right, right. That makes sense. Isn't there the uh, the old trope in medicine about, uh, you know, if you're if you're in Wyoming and you see something that looks like a horse, it's probably a horse and not a zebra. (laughs) You know, yeah. Um, Very cool. Very cool. So uh, young. So I, I also think it's really incredible that you focused in on CT because, again, 
the CT is such a uh, characteristic modality. It's such a baseline clinical tool that so many hospitals seem to have. Would, did that go in and factor in a little bit about using CT versus MRI versus other imaging principles? Obviously, there are benefits to CT, but can you break down a little bit, a little bit what that is? So, uh, yes, so actually, just all Michael and Ned mentioned, the chest CT image is kind of standard clinical care, or for, but not for screening in some hospitals. They, the, the reason is that the chest CT have very high spatial resolution, and then you have multiple slices, which means you can capture, capture the anatomy detail very, in very detailed levels, it's, which will be very good for the image analysis. Image analysis you can imagine if uh, the better detail you have, the easier you can grab some information from those. And then this is why we also using that for the, the AI because this is kind of like a simple, simple you know, question first compared to chest array, which is only one image, you know, contact all from all directions together. So a chest CT, uh, uh, especially high resolution chest CT have very rich information as they mentioned. And meanwhile, I just also want to mention uh, like for MRI or other image modality, uh, they might not be very, even based on the imaging, you know, modality characteristic, uh, in some image speed or other, uh, other reasons, though they are not, you know, good for uh, the, for COVID, you know, screening purpose, especially for MRI, you can imagine. I'm doing, actually I'm doing MRI a lot, so MRI, you know, is very sensitive to some air tissue, you know, uh, interface. You can imagine long, it's all airs, you know. Right. So right. there will be a lot of image, image artifacts unless you use very specialized images. And then on the screen time, because scanning time is very long compared to SCD. And boom, SCD, maybe like several, the whole breath hole 10 to 10 seconds, you can do that. But, but for uh, MRI, you maybe need like minutes, even 10 minutes to do that. So which is not that easy and then you know especially for this uh, special disease and also uh, we will try to make as fast as possible and then to reduce the infection rate for you know for 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 the when you scan so that's a major reason why we use ct and then and then uh and majority reason just mentioned like you know, the rich for rich for imaging features we can do and then for other reasons just i like mentioned specific for for the, this like uh the covid disease Right, yeah, the, and that seems to make sense as well as you know, if it's a, if it's a much shorter scan, these are patients who are having some breathing symptoms. They're having they're having you know the cardiopulmonary issues. So to have to hold breath for a longer time than necessary, that's that I'm sure can be a, a, a bigger challenge than it might typically uh, might typically if you're just going swimming or something like that. Um, I understand. So. I would love if you could break down a little bit what goes into building an AI algorithm, what goes into training a network like this, because how does this really work? It's AI and ML and you know machine learning is, is such a huge buzzword, but I feel like we hear it tossed around more than we hear it truly explained. Exactly. So uh, so the first the first maybe term you think about AI, maybe a, we call it black box. You, know, you <laughs> don't know what they are doing for those. So Similar, like uh, yeah, really cool. just the, the the black box concept is you 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 know train something, you build an algorithm, yeah. and you get yeah. the output, and it's correct, but you're not sure how that algorithm actually created the correct exactly. answer. You have the answers, exactly. but you're not sure what questions they were asking, and that's that's how we learn from them. <laughs> so yeah, sorry. So that, that's why when we designed this one, we we actually based on you know kind of come, try to mimic what how they do like uh, read to read images and then to design a system. So for example. When we have CD, first chest CD images, they have multiple slices. So you can do like a pure, like 3D training. You don't need, we don't care what kind of image inside, just treat the whole image as input to the system. 
So actually, we do a two steps. The first is we to try to do some slide selection to have the major features, like just like the radiology read images. So okay, they quickly go through the all images. They identify some you know key sizes and then look detail into that. We do the similar stuff. So we first do the slide selection, and then have a major features. And then have once we have major features, uh, we uh, and then we move that using that slices like select pre select uh, pre selected slices for next uh, diagnosis you know network. And then for diagnosis network, the input is the uh, selected slices, and output is like uh, RT PCR confirmed you know yes or no. And then for this. We are using like uh, this is kind of more a backup box now, you know, mm-hmm. using the pre-trained model. So we, you can imagine, so the the, the chest, pure chest CT images, even we have uh, like thousands of cases, that's still very small compared to nature images. So that's why we use some you know nature images like uh, cats and dogs, on you know some you know uh, pre-trained networks. Like we some of them we can call there are tons of some that, that works to grab different feature level features. So we kind of use some transport learning. So learning, so using some pre-trained model from nature images, and then we additionally learn the image features from the chest CT images from COVID data, COVID patient or non-COVID you know, patient, and then combine them together to do some prediction. So it's not that pure, we just using the data we have, like for example, we have, if we have 1,000 cases, we, we didn't only grab the features from this 1,000 cases. We also borrow, borrow, borrow some experience from some nature images, like uh, like edges, you know, or shape, etc. So you right. can, you know, enhance your power of your like that, like the uh, training part. And meanwhile, when we do the design the, the system for AI, you need to do design very carefully about like uh, you need to separate data set into testing sets, you know, or sorry, training training sets and then validation set and then testing set. Training set, which means you use the data, part of data, for the 1,000 cases, using like 60%, like 600 cases as a training. You gain and then train the model and mm. features. And then meanwhile, we have to do a train. We also use a small portion of data to do validate your result, which means the network still see the validation that test set, validation set to, you know, further, you know, optimize or improve your performance. After you have the whole model, you are using the we are using the, the pure called testing set which I have never seen by the by the AI and to predict the performance to see how comparable that is compared to the radiologist in performance. So this is a general story about those. Gotcha. That makes that makes sense. Thank you for explaining. So that must have been a really exciting moment though when you first put that train you know the un, the uh, unvalidated data back in and saw that it cre- created some of the correct outputs. What what's what's that what was that like for you? Uh, because to tell you, I'm not directly doing that. Okay. So, but I, when I, when the first train, you know, shared like our students to share share uh, share the like the news, the all the results to me, we are excited because to tell you that we're, even at the very first round of training, we get a, a reasonable performance. Definitely not as good as we reported in the paper, so we optimize that. But at the very at the very beginning, you know, the res, initial result is already excited. You know, the the okay. Interesting. Okay, by doing that, we can learn some features from the radiologists, and then that's cool. And then maybe you can help the work. You know, the kind of I'm here on the work kind of. But anyway, it's kind of a uh, teasing for those. It's kind of like we want we once it's kind of all kind of stuff. When we have some you know uh, exciting results, we are always very joyful about those. And then it's kind of our hard work is paid back, paying back. You know? 
kind of loud confidence. Yeah. Right, exactly, exactly. And so now to kind of switch gears a little bit of perspectives, Adam and Mike, where do you guys sit on AI's integration into radiology? What have you guys seen in your day-to-day and your function, and, and where do you perceive it as going? It's a really good question, and I think I would just offer an introductory uh, prefatory comment to AI Please in do. general for myself. <laughs> Um, I, I think that my own position and my own thoughts have evolved in the last maybe three to five years. I think initially, as a radiologist, when AI first started to emerge as something that people were talking about a lot in the conferences, in the literature, in the journals, um, I, was, I was definitely very skeptical. I'm reminded by the hype cycle. Many people may know of the Gartner hype cycle, where a new innovation is often um, felt to be very promising. And there's almost a, a certain sense of unrealistic expectations. And I, I think that there are many applications of innovation that, that fit the hype cycle that we see in our world, whether it's 3D printing or autonomous driving. I think, I think there are many applications. And I, and I, think, that, um, I think that AI, um, in, in some ways, maybe is something that, that fits that paradigm in, in some way. But I think in the last uh, couple of years, I've, I've started to recognize that um, AI truly is going to be foundational for the future of radiology and will have an, an enormous impact in our field and in all of medicine. I think that it's going to be a process, and I think that we're only in the most early, early innings. Uh, I think we're really just just starting, and I think it's going to have a long way to go and will require patience, and there will be many obstacles along the way. So I think, uh, I think it's going to be uh, you know, a, a, a journey with, with, uh, with, with a long time course, but I really do think that the future belongs to those who, um, who are in the driver's seat of AI. So that's why I think it's wonderful to be here at Mount Sinai. We have wonderful colleagues and wonderful people working at BIMI and others who are uh, sort of uh, forging that future ahead. So I think, um, I think in practice, in day-to-day clinical practice, for me as a radiologist, I don't think my life is changing that dramatically with, with, with AI tomorrow. But I do think longer term of the course of the future, it really will be transformative. Incredible. Mike, what do you think? So, yes, I also want to add several oh, comments. Yeah. So, absolutely. Yeah, Adam, so that's kind of like uh, some people always say, okay, when AI come in, it's whether we will replace the radiologist. Right, radiologist. that's always a discussion. Answer, answer actually is no, because uh, always we all just say the AI is kind of a, we are uh, providing an additional tool right. for you know the radiologists to aid them to uh, more efficient to read images or like make a quick diagnosis uh, or decisions. So we kind of like we are the friends, you know, like AI is the friends of the radiologists, kind of provide them the, the help and then make their life easier and then not try to replace it. Just right. that, AI that can do a bit of the grunt work. <laughs> I, I, I agree completely. I think I think it will be a tremendous complimentary tool to help radiologists. We're so overwhelmed and, and naturally in terms of our volume. And uh, I, I think AI will be, will be eventually very, very helpful for us. I, I agree with that completely. Yeah, one of the ways that I've really seen it become very useful um, in my, I work on the preclinical imaging side, and a lot of the AI segmentation tools that have started to be released that you can add as plugins to, you know, the, the viewers I use, Osiris, um, have really been incredible. It doesn't, it doesn't by any means eliminate the human impact and, and, you know, almost a little bit more of the artistic sense of seeing and interpreting, but in the basic ways of delineating out organs and allowing for further analysis and quantification using those programs, it really is quite useful. Useful. Um, Mike, let's or, or, uh, yeah, Mike, let's, let's let's throw it back to you. What are you thinking about this? Uh, I mean, I'll really just echo and agree with what everyone else said. Um, I think many radiologists, even people in um, Adam and my generation, and we're relatively early on in our careers, we saw AI as something that's scary or intimidating. Um, 
something that could potentially replace us, as Yang was uh, hinting at. But uh, I think it's become a lot more uh, digestible and accessible for a lot of radiologists now. I, I think COVID has, COVID has played a large role in that. And um, whenever you go to any national conference now, um, there's always uh, a large section or uh, a large portion of every radiology conference that's dedicated to artificial intelligence. So uh, I think it will be um, a really foundational, uh, critical um, tool uh, that's going to help all radiologists kind of navigate the future. That's fantastic, guys. Um, do you guys have any closing notes? What, what, you know, uh, uh, what, what are your, I guess, your vision towards the future right now, going in with, with COVID, with the diagnostic aspects, with the treatment aspects, you know, your experience being there on the front line, we all owe a, an unbelievable uh, debt of, of gratitude to you guys. Um, what, what has it been like? Has it been really tough to be on that level of seeing patients and, and, and being, you know, that diagnostic having such a, a huge hand in, in their treatment, in their course of treatment. I will say, though, that um, uh, thank you for those kind words, but um, we really do have to thank the, the real, like, heroes and, uh, and they're, like, the clinicians and the nurses and every staff that was really seeing the patients uh, during the height of that epidemic. Um, I, I think we as radiologists were a bit protected at times, mm. and that's fine. Like, we all, we all play a role uh, exactly. in this um, outbreak and in this pandemic, and everyone's important, but... Um, personally, I just would yeah, thank the people who um, really paved the way to uh, fight against uh, COVID-19. Absolutely, yeah. It's the, an unbelievable thanks goes out to everyone, the essential workers, the non-essential workers, everybody who's, you know, who's, who's stepped up and, and really, you know, put forward all their best efforts and put themselves in, in honestly, in, 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 you know, a position of risk in order to benefit the world as a, as a whole. Um, I, I'd love actually to discuss a little bit uh, something that I ascertained from the Nature Medicine paper was this feeling that maybe the way that the AI software was, uh, that the AI algorithm was able to reconcile and, and make these diagnoses that, uh, that were before the time that radiology uh, symptoms were, were being shown. They, they had talked about, you know, a 68% um, th these patients, you know, these 25 patients who had positive RT-PCR uh, but had not yet shown radiology symptoms. So does that almost suggest that the AI algorithm was working as a concerted collaborative effort between the different inputs that you have, the clinical data, the, you know, the, the, the test that hasn't yet come out, obviously we're talking about, as we were discussing before, these are concurrent tests running. So that changes that workflow a little bit, but does it almost suggest that there's uh there's, there's some more communication that needs to happen between team members of a, of a healthcare team? Um, maybe I can comment something. So yes, it looks like you read the paper in a very detailed way. So yes, you have to, totally you have to, what you guys did was incredible <laughs> and it's really cool. So, so I want to make some general comments. So the AI or whatever computer, you know, algorithm you can imagine, they all based on what kind of you feed them and they also learn from what you feed them. If you didn't feed them the, the, the feature, they might self-learn something, but most of the cases they cannot. Mm. So which means that's why for our, like, like uh, when we do the research, we are trying to incorporate as much information as possible for some imaging, you know, features of a clinical, you know, symptom or clinical information. So the more we feed them, you, 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 there's always good, you know, pros and cons. The process, you, the, 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 the computer might see more stuff. The, the cons maybe okay, they see too much stuff, and then <laughs> they don't know what, which one is the right one, you know. So, which means when you design something, you need, also need to do very carefully about sensitivity analysis, etc. Stuff. So to 
external key features, whatever, all from all letter computer to automatic or self-learning to select the key features. But overall, you know, generally speaking, I think the more you feed in the, into the system, the better you supposed to, to, to have better results. But uh, which also means the synchronization of all kinds of uh, stuff like uh, radiology images, you know, some clinicians, you know, for the clinical information, etc. So I think this is definitely a true teamwork if we really want to move forward for the next step, uh, in, in, you know, integrate all the uh, kind of useful information and then make a comprehensive diagnosis. This is needs a really uh, teamwork for that. Absolutely. It all goes back to teamwork. And here at Sinai and beyond, it sounds uh, it sounds like teamwork is something that we have in abundance right now. Teamwork and hope, which is incredible. Um, Yang, as a closing little thing, I, I really find, and I've personally benefited from it um, as we were all coming in during this time. And again, I was off the front lines as well. So thank you to those who truly were. But as we were doing COVID research, we were only able to do it uh, uh, in the beginning when supply chains were still really tough with PPE because you had an incredible collaboration with, uh, with, with uh, friends and scientists from China who were able to send and supply huge stocks that we're still using through of, of PPE. So tell, tell us a little bit about that. I'm glad that helped to tell you. So this is also an interesting or funny story. So at the very beginning, you know, uh, it's interesting because we mentioned that the outbreak started in China first and then uh, when we get here, like in March, actually in China, they are waiting better now. So they have a lot of like uh, piles for PPE. And then at that time, U.S. needs a lot of like potential, you know, our, especially our institution, we lack of the PPEs. I just, I just, you know, for curiosity, say, hey, uh, do you guys have some spare, you know, storage or whatever? And then uh, they say, okay, we have a very formal way. You can fill out a form and then we can send you some donations. I say, that's fantastic. And then, Luckily, I just fill out a form in, in the name of, you know, our institution and ask for anything. I didn't request any amount. I just say, <laughs> give whatever you think is uh, reasonable for us. Right. And then, uh, I, and then one day I just received my, because I leave my own, you know, contact information to, their, to them, you know, my cell phone number and my home address, they, they were shipped from China directly to my home. And then one day in morning, I received like uh, tons of like um, SMS messages say. You have a CHL package, you know, well, oh, maybe small box, small boxes, and they just, uh, you know, separate into multiple small boxes. And then when they arrive at home, I'm, I'm astonished. You know, each one is a huge size, and then we They're receive massive. maybe 15 boxes, which is, a, you know, thousands or even 10,000 of masks in them, you know, guns, or et cetera. So to tell you, I'm very, you know, you know, grateful for them, you know, how they love. Uh, appreciate for their, you know, their general donations. Exactly. And then it's kind of the whole world I uh, fight together. It's not only like China fight their war and then U.S. fight their you know, pandemic. I think the whole world eventually, like, you know, fighting to, you know, join together to fight this pandemic. Because you can imagine one country, you know, survive doesn't mean a whole, whole world survive because it's so, you know, spread so fast. And then human to human transmission is very, you know, crazy. So only in the whole world to have battled this completely, it will be gone. Otherwise, it's impossible to totally kill, kind of kill this kind of enemy, you know? Exactly, exactly. So I think I think that that's kind of the, you know, closing overarching theme of this whole discussion and experience, which is collaboration and, you know, not just between humans and humans from very different places, um, but also between the machines that we make and the tools that we utilize. Uh, thank you guys so much for joining today. Thank you for taking the time. I thought it's been a really interesting discussion and, and hopefully people think so as well. Um, thank you guys very much. Appreciate it.
Thank you, Jasper. Yeah. Absolutely. Best of luck and thanks again.